0: Welcome to episode one hundred of the with Joey b podcast. We've made it to a hundred so thanks to you for sticking with this for so long or if you're just tuning in for the first time even uh welcome and yeah it's it's great to be here wow, a hundred we did it and on reflection you know i've I've somewhat enjoyed this it's been a lot of work, the daily format um but I do want to continue it for the time being. I think that there's a, a powerful symbolism behind um, showing up, especially daily for now, as long as I can sustain that. Maybe not forever, but for now, I'm going to keep giving it a try. And there's just a symbolism about, I think, delivering, which I think is important. I think it's important to show up and try and deliver value and and offer something positive. Uh So... Yeah, when you get up every morning, or if you go to, when you go to bed at night, I'm gonna endeavor to remain here for you, and and you're with me too, and I feel that. So, a big thank you. Um, but ironically, it's it's funny to thank people even for listening to your show, to your podcast, for reading your book and stuff like that. It's it's kind of fu- It's funny. I think that I think it's funny because a lot of the time, what we're doing, we're creating for service. Um, and so it's not really for us yet. We thank people like they're doing us a favor by listening to, to our podcast or, or reading our blog or book or whatever. So it's kind of funny when I think about the podcast and, um, you know, and I talk to people who are listening, thank you feels actually like a funny thing to say. And maybe I'm saying, wow, thank you for being interested in you. And thank you for maybe being interested in you and then other people. Uh, yeah. Because sometimes we're doing things that are bigger than ourselves. Now, what I wanted to reflect on for today, and to pick up something befitting of the 100th episode. I wanted to reflect on a, one of the blog posts again, to go back to one of my blog posts. And it's called, I was wrong, rethinking the comfort ladder. And it's called, I was wrong, because I see no problem with if I disagree or evolve and build on my understanding of an earlier concept, even if I publish something about it, um, I have no shame in kind of saying I was wrong. And that's, I think, an important message to send, too, that we can't just be putting things out there in the world for the sake of it. So... This one, as comfort ladder, we talked about very early on in the podcast in relation to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I was at this period where I was struggling to write this post, and I don't normally struggle to write. It was the closest thing I've had in a very long time to what people call writer's block, which, for those who know me, is a very uncommon experience for me. So, and I think the reason for that was there was it was. It was nagging at something deeper. There was something I wasn't understanding yet because a lot of the writing is a function of understanding and there just wasn't something I was understanding. So that's the picture I want to paint today. So the picture I want to paint is I want you to think in terms of, especially in a, a, a more of a Western culture right now, there is such a thing as a kind of stock life. There's this more or less this script of when you're young you go to school and you're educated and then you go out into the world and along and then wh- when in your uh, late teens early 20s you begin this process of finding something of a career out in the world when you're my age you start to convert that into something more stable but the focus is prominent pr- uh, first and foremost normally on your career maybe having some experiences alongside that setting yourself up financially And then perhaps marrying, settling down, having a family, providing for a family. But normally uh, at the same time, there's this prioritization of furthering and furthering ourselves financially. We look for more and more financial upside and career stability. And then what a lot of people do, once they reach a point where they're certainly well off enough, is they start giving back. And I always found the concept of giving back funny. Whereas, I, I I don't know, I always thought of myself as someone who might try to give forward um, to build one's whole, I don't know, career based on service initially rather than the at the back end and giving backwards. And I think it's quite funny because I always wondered if people are so dead set on giving back and if it's so important to them and they really want to make a difference, why would they spend so much effort and time to actually creating all the wealth the career the progress creating all these things if part of the joy of them is giving them away as well and that's always been hard to just uh, justify a way up in the balance sheet of my mind and so in the in the comfort ladder I re- was reflecting on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and if you remember the more basic needs we have are at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, and then the thing at the top is is called self-actualization, which is our full potential, reaching our full potential more or less. And then below that's like love, belonging needs, and then at the bottom is safety and physical needs, food, water, comfort, shelter, that sort of stuff. And that they kind of they tend to, you know, once you've met the needs at the base, you care more about the things above it. So that's that's to revisit kind of the the gist behind Maslow's. And so I started to wonder, you know, why isn't doing great service the top of people's list all the way through when they get to that point? Now, I thought of the comfort ladder and that we tend to just try and make our lives more and more comfortable rather than making them more and more meaningful. But when I was rethinking this whole comfort ladder idea, which was my comment on Maslow's, I was just thinking about people not really trying to optimize for comfort. that That's not always the biggest driver, rather. There, certainly there are people who, who are just focused on yeah. um, making their lives more comfortable or luxurious. Uh, but I think, I was thinking, wow, a big part of it is status, right? We've talked a bit about status games. Like a lot of it is the, 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 the yeah, the, the, the standing you have in society, the perception in the eyes of others. And that's a big appeal and incentive of, of um, I guess pursuing being very career and and personal finance and well-being driven, and then I realized I realized that a lot of this related to what I learned when I was working in the whole charitable and and nonprofit humanitarian development space, and all the stuff I learned there and observing people's behavior, especially donors' behavior, and then I realized how much this sort of came back to that. Because a big part of the motivation, especially people who donate, was not to actually, a lot of them didn't donate, you know, publicly. And this is the whole, in in the Bible, you know, in the Gospels, it's, you know, don't, don't give loudly and, you know, showing off and pray loudly on the street. You know, pray in private, you know, be humble and subtle about it. And so, is the idea of a noble person someone who does good things but just in private? where no one hears about them. And does that mean that they're doing the best thing they could be doing? Does does that mean they're doing the right thing because they're not just looking for status or approval from others? And that's when I realized that even in the example of the donation and the example of like giving back, a donation is anonymous. uh, Okay, put it this way. An anonymous donation is anonymous to the public. But the problem with an anonymous donation is that it's never anonymous to one person. And that person is you, the donor. And this is where it starts to get interesting. This is where this thread of thinking starts to get really interesting. So we can go our whole careers, looking at ourselves as people who are not materialistic and not money-driven. Yet a lot of our decision-making will be driven around financial factors and then we are able to tell ourselves a story by giving back because the the long story short of my experience from a from a a charity kind of nonprofit background is that very few people give back effectively and that's because giving back is not their primary incentive most people who are donating to charities primary incentive for better or for worse not the end of the world per se is is the relief of guilt, or the feeling that they've done something, and that is true because you realize that most people don't look deeply into where that money go- where that money goes, rather the impact it has, especially because it's hard to trace. But it's all part of constructing a story, a story that enables you to gain status, in a career and wealth, but then tell yourself the story that that was not everything you were after by, by looking for ways to give back and actually giving it away and reducing it. Begging the question, why I set out? and put so much effort and attention to that in the first place. Now, I was looking for the answer, looking for the answer, looking for the answer, and I found this word that really resonated. So to tell a parallel story, in the week before, and it's funny how this all happened at around the same time, I was catching up with my cousin, who's a, a very wise man. And we we're talking about suicide. And I was talking about how it's the biggest shame that in such a modern, comfortable world, the biggest obstacle we seem to have, uh, especially young people, because it's such, it's I, th- I believe it's the leading cause of death for young people in their in their late in their teens and and early twenties, I suppose. That our biggest challenge is putting up with the fact that we exist. And he said, "Oh, it's got nothing to do with I think putting up with the fact that we exist." He said, and I don't know the source, but he said, "If you look at the thoughts, last thoughts of suicidal people, it's often around image." It's often around the image they have of themselves. And this struck me. Our whole stories that we write with our lives, especially the kind of stock life example of building a career and then focus on giving back, a very big stereotype, generic story. Not, not, Not talking about anyone in particular specifically, but it's a cultural narrative. And the whole, the, the giving back and the good stuff, even if done anonymously, is not anonymous to one person. So it, our big arc in life, in Western life in particular, is so driven by the image we have of ourselves and the need to carve a satisfactory image of ourselves. And when, I'm, when all this is occurring and revealing itself to me, I'm getting to the core of something deep about how we construct our lives, what our motivations are for the things we do. And that's when I was talking again at the same time, a third factor here, was talking to uh, another friend of mine. Uh, I'll mention his name, Robbie. We're having a very interesting conversation and he was criticizing Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I was opening my, I said, I'll be open. I'll look into this. And he started talking about a guy who's very well known called Viktor Frankl instead. And Viktor Frankl, very famous for writing one of the most famous books of all time itself, Man's Search for Meaning, about his experiences in a concentration camp and therefore his thoughts about the meaning of life. And when I poked around a bit more, I'd read the book, but when I poked around a bit more, because, you know, with an older head on my shoulders, and I looked back and I realized that that thing at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, self-actualization, when you think about it, is actually a way of looking at our potential. It's insular. It focuses on one person, you. But all that's doing is inflating the need for the image we have. I want to read a quote. I know it's not very classy to read this off screen as I am now. But there was a word that came up instead of self-actualization, which was self-transcendence. And though I'd been familiar with the phrase before, it returned to me in a very particular and specific and special time. So there's a quote by Viktor Frankl that I want to read, which says this way better than I ever could. Only to the extent that someone is living out this self-transcendence of human existence, is he truly human or does he become his true self? He becomes so not by concerning himself with his self's actualization, but by forgetting himself and giving himself, overlooking himself, and focusing outward. And I think that that is the best possible um, explanation of self-transcendence, of looking beyond oneself, of extending the idea of oneself to include one's community, to care about other people the way you care about a family, which is that in many instances, their needs come before yours. Self-transcendence. And this is when I realized that self-transcendence, for the time being, in my eyes, is the ultimate ideal that we can strive for in life. Looking beyond you. The conversation I was having with someone last night was that I do not... I it, it, this podcast is not something i associate with the personal development movement the typical personal development movement um but it certainly probably looks that way it's probably a bucket you'd throw it into but the if we want to not use the word personal development because that's a fair bit broad and talk about the esteem the self-esteem movement which is about making you feel better about yourself telling you you're special and have purpose and stuff And I found that counterintuitive because it's inflated the need. It's inflated the self-image we need to have. It's made it bigger. It's counterintuitive. This is what, according to the anecdote of my cousin, which research I haven't looked into, this has a powerful link with suicide. The gap between who you think you need to be and who you are now is about the self-actualization idea. Whereas what we're saying with self-transcendence, what I believe in is much more akin to the philosophy of the Anthony DeMello's of the world, which is don't think about you as much. Drop the need for your self-importance. Look broader than you, focusing outward, forgetting yourself. It's actually the opposite of boosting your self-esteem. So, yeah, at this time, I just want to say thank you. So that's episode 100 and that's to to bring it. It's one of the most important lessons I've learned so far. And there's a bit going on in life now, you know, at the moment we're launching the book 18 and lost. So are we, we're also launching the online business called the constant student, which is our attempt to make the, the projects, the space online, the community that helps you thrive in an uncertain future, but also I guess helps you go on your own journey. I really think of this as a, as a journey building tool, especially to find the people that help you along your journey. And I've, I think of it as a, uh, you know, opening a door to kind of Narnia and the world of what's possible digitally and, um, and in the creative industries and in the unknown and rather than trying to pursue only uh, the options of, of linear paths so that's stuff happening right now and it's an incredibly momentous time and it's full of excitement and, and challenges uh, but we're dealing with it and I think for the 100th episode the question at the end I want to reflect on is maybe what I'll do every 100 episodes because it is so far of all of the great questions my favorite one which is what I call the f- my five-year question, which is if you had five years to live or five to 10 years to live, um, pe- pretending you had a mysterious terminal illness or some other ailment, and you only had five years left, not five months, not five weeks, because those answers are a lot easier. You'd just be focused on having fun, but five years. If you had five years to live, how would you be living differently? how would you be living differently? And what I find is that because that time horizon is shorter, it makes you think about the real substantial components of your life and not the fluff and you cut the fluff. And so what's always amazing to think about after you answer that question for yourself is to what extent you're living that way now. And the closer your life is now to what it would be if you answer, when you answer that question, when you think about you're going to die in five years, how are you going to spend the last five years of your life? The closer they are, I'd argue the more aligned your life is. Um, but that's certainly, I guess, that's because it's how it's always felt for me. And there, there's not too much I would change. Very small things I would change myself when I think about this question right now. Uh, which makes me very happy, because there's certainly times where I would have changed a lot. There's something healthy about the assumption that you've only got five years to go, no matter how old you are. So I'll leave you to ponder that. I think this is our first twenty-minute episode. Just noticed the clock, so big celebration for hundred. Thank you for very very much for everyone who's been listening so far. You know who knows where this journey will go. Um, I don't know what will change, I don't know what will remain the same apart from one thing, of course, that the best way to open a thousand doors for you is to concentrate on opening doors for others.